Welcome to the Daily Bite. I'm your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. Today's reading brings us to Ephesians chapter 4. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Until we attain to the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another 
tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. The text begins with Paul for the second time now, he did it yesterday as well, calling himself a prisoner of the Lord, a prisoner of Christ. He is currently a prisoner of the Roman Empire for the sake of Christ, for the sake of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news to the world. And so Paul here, you've got conversations in the New Testament about being either a slave to sin or a slave to God, that you are one or the other. And Paul is treating this similarly. He is a prisoner for Christ. He is doing whatever it is Christ would have to do would have him to do. He's not living his life for himself, but he is in Christ. He is in chains to serve Christ at this time. And he urges the Ephesian church, and this urges us as well, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they have been called. This is a spot to stop and talk about this with your children. First, What is our calling? What have we been called to? Now that is as simple as saying that we are children of God. That's the simplest way to phrase it. We have been adopted, as Paul has said in this letter. We are his. We are not of the world any longer. We are to not live like the world around us, but rather we are to live as prisoners of the Lord. We are to live as servants of Jesus those who know that we are co-heirs with Christ, that we get to reign with him over his entire creation. While we are not perfect in this world and in this place, this is true, there's no reason for us to wait until we reach paradise to live in the way that God has designed us to live. Right? I mean, that's Ephesians 2.10. We can be doing that now. God made good works for us to do, so let's go and do them. So what does walking in a manner worthy of the calling then look like? So we discussed the calling. So how do we walk in a worthy manner? Now Paul's going to throw some words at us here in verse 2. Humility. It's a big one. Humility is the opposite of pride. The American culture of the 21st century highlights pride. It is perhaps the, the chief virtue of our culture at this time. But it's a Really, it's a wicked sin. To be proud is to look to yourself, to brag of oneself. And Scripture teaches us to do the opposite, to not look to ourselves, but instead to to think less of ourselves in order that we might look to others and serve and care for them instead. And you got the great text about humility from Philippians 2 that Paul wrote about how Jesus humbled himself even to the point of death. Gentleness is another. We can talk about gentleness and respect from Peter's letter, how we are to treat those who are not a part of the church. Patience. It's a virtue, right, parents? Now, this is a hard one to learn. Certainly pray for this. Pray that the Lord would give you patience. And that really fits with the next line, that we would bear with one another in love. We're going to hurt each other. Guaranteed, right? We put two sinners together. I guarantee you they will cause harm to one another. 
I mean, they may not actually break out into a fist fight, but they will hurt each other. They will sin against each other. And so we must forgive one another. That's going to come up at the end of the chapter. But this also, as we bear with one another, is not just as we sin against each other, but it's also with the needs of, of the others around us too. That we would serve together, we would care for one another in the church. Verse 3, eager to maintain this unity, again, that this whole letter has been focused on. So we've been reading again and again. And that comes right back up right here in verse 4. The bond of peace, by the way, referring to the peace that Christ won for us by his death on the cross that shattered all those dividing walls of hostility between us. So Paul, verse 4, reminds us there's one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. Whew. Notice anything? There's only one faith. There are not many. There are not many roads that lead to paradise. There's only one. There's only one God. There's only one Jesus. There's only one way to be saved, and it comes through him. It comes through what he's already done for you, his wondrous gift of his death and his resurrection, through which you have forgiveness and life that never ends. And we have been called into this together. It is not my hope and your hope as though they are two different hopes, but they are one. They are one and the same. That does teach us to treat one another differently, again, than the world would have us treat one another. Verse 7 gives us a citation from the Psalms. That one comes from Psalm 68, verse 18. And Paul is going to point out the idea of Jesus ascending requires that he first descended. So he started up in heaven and he descended to the earth so that he could then finally ascend again to heaven. And so is this a reference to his incarnation or his descent into hell? I think you have had various scholars at different times that have suggested both. I don't see any reason here, though, that we need to stretch this beyond his incarnation. Christ took on flesh. He was willing to humble himself to that point, to be born of the Virgin Mary in order to, to live the life we had been called to live, the perfect life expected of us from the law that we failed to keep, he kept for us. That's the reference, I think, of this dissension into the lower regions, specifically the earth. Now, as we look at verse 11, Jesus gives gifts to his church. And so he meant, Paul mentions apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. Now, these are not all the same. There is some overlap. Apostles would refer to the New Testament preachers like Paul, prophets to the Old Testament workers, uh, speaking God's word to his people. Uh, evangelists are those who share the good news. So that's going to be the work that both the apostles and prophets did, but it's also going to be what the shepherds and the teachers are up to. Shepherds care for the sheep. In this particular instance, they would be the pastors over the flock. Um, pastors also teach, but you might have others who are teaching that maybe not specifically called pastors as well. And so you've got these different roles in the early church, even the church prior to the crucifixion. And what is their purpose? Verse 12, to equip 
the saints for the work of the ministry. It gets talked a lot about in pastoral circles that there's a distinction in the Lutheran church that a lot of times the people in the pew think it's the pastor's job to do evangelism and that they're, they don't have to, they're not supposed to. And that's not the way it works. I mean, right here we see it's the job of the those that Jesus has given to his church to equip the whole church, right? These guys are equipping the saints for the work of ministry. Those who lead the church are, are shepherds of the church, are given to the church by God, by Jesus, in order to equip all of us, the whole church, to build one another up. I get to build you up, hopefully through a podcast like this, um, by our interactions together in person, by providing you with word and sacrament. You too get to build me up by the way that you come to church to to hear his, his good news, the way that you rejoice to hear that, the way that you love to receive his sacrament, that, that builds up your pastor, and the way that you support and love and care for my family as we serve together in this community. Those are all examples of how a layperson can encourage the work of the pastor of their church. Verse 14, well, 13 and 14, until we've attained this unity a mature manhood, that we're no longer children, we're no longer tossed about by deceitful, crafty human doctrines. When does this happen? You could initially probably make a case for this is what we're aiming for in confirmation classes, right? We wish at the rite of confirmation to have mature Christians who are willing to die for this faith and not be misled and, and taken away from it. Ultimately, however, I think the answer to this question is probably paradise. As we stand before the judgment throne of God, this is when we will certainly no longer be tossed to and fro by every wave. Um, but there is still a necessity, there's still a need in the church today that we would equip one another so that we're not tossed to and fro, um, that we would be rooted together. Um, and I mean, this, these things are dangerous, so we don't want to just be open to them. As we keep looking on, uh, verse 15, growing every way into him who is the head, held together by every joint. Think about the, the analogy that, that Paul is giving there. What does the head do for the body? It's a question you can talk about with your children. The head of the body guides the body. It directs the body. It teaches us. Oh, it gives instructions, right? We know that the brain sends the signal to the hand, so I want to pick up a cup and take a drink of water. My brain sends that signal to my arm to, to lift and raise, and then to the hand to reach out and to, to clasp onto that cup, and then to, you know, even all those muscles that are involved in lifting that up and, and bringing it to my mouth that I can take the drink, and then all the work that's done by the parts, you know, in your digestive system to to process and utilize the things that are being given to it. The whole body works together. This is a beautiful picture of the church. Jesus is the head. Without Jesus, none of this happens. But in Jesus, there is a blessing given to the whole. We have life, and we have it together. 
All right, the second section of the text today, starting at verse 17 there, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. That refers back to chapter 3 yesterday, the passions of the flesh, just doing whatever our hearts intend to do. The Gentiles are darkened. Notice how he's actually distinguishing the Ephesians from the Gentiles here, although the Ephesians are Gentiles. He has welcomed them into this body of Christ, so he's no longer talking that way. It's no longer a Jew-Gentile thing. This is now a Christian-Gentile thing. There are Christians, and then there are all the other nations. As Jesus said, go make disciples of all nations. That's the new distinction. You're either in Christ or you're not in Christ. So no longer walk as those who are not in Christ. They are darkened. They are alienated. Um, To be an alien means to be foreign. So they are foreign to the life of God. Notice that. They're foreign to life. They don't have life. They're dead in their trespasses from Ephesians 2. They are hard of heart. Not a good phrase in Scripture. They've become callous, which is that hardness. They've given themselves over to their sin. We see that in Paul's letter to Rome in chapter 1, that God has given over uh, sinners to their sins, to the desires of their wickedness. We see a lot of that in the world around us. Verse 20, though, that is not the way you learned Christ. So we learn of Christ of his humility, of his gifts, of his sacrifice, of his love, the truth that he is. And that leads us to something different. It leads us to be, verse 23, renewed to put on the new self. Chapter, or verse 21, takes us back to chapter 3, verse 2. Twice now, Paul has said, assuming that, he's assuming that they've heard the gospel, that they have believed in Jesus, If they haven't, they wouldn't be reading this letter from him. But we're to take off the old self, which is corrupt, because of our old sinful desires, and be renewed, put on the new self. This is the picture of our faith that is given to us by God. We are, verse 23, sorry, 24, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. And that's not actually a reference to when God knit us together in our mother's wombs. Right? Genesis 1 and 2, we can see that God made man in his image. Adam and Eve were made in the image of God. However, Genesis 4, after the fall, when you see them give birth to Seth, we learn that he was made in Adam's image. Not God's. The the image of God was a thing of perfection. And when that was lost in the fall, when that's broken, we no longer bear that image. But now, in Christ, through what Christ has done for us, again, by his death and resurrection, as we put on the new self, as we put on Christ, we'll see that in chapter 6 in two days, as we see that, we are being created in the likeness of God. A new creation. We, We are being restored. We are being remade into the image of God himself to care for his creation again. So we get a list of things to do of what this worthy manner of walking looks like. Speak the truth with our neighbor. Now that would be a reference here specifically not just to anybody, but to our our brothers and sisters within the church. As it says, we are members of one body, members of one another. That's a reference to the body of Christ. 
then we get a fourfold thing, right? So verses 26 and 27 go together. Good luck not getting angry. That's hard. And even more so to not sin when you're angry. I would put the argument before you that really there is there's very little place for anger within the Christian because we we are not God. When God is angry, it is a righteous anger against sin. But even in those moments where we might have the option of being righteously angry against sin in our lives, that anger is still tainted by our own sin. So instead, look to the next clause. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. That's a push towards reconciliation. Do not let the sun go down means don't let the day end when you're angry. Be reconciled first. How much different would your life be if we lived this? How many nights do you go to bed angry at your spouse, unreconciled? How many times have you come home from work angry with your boss and you just bottle it up until the next day and the next day and the next day? How many times has your friend at school said something that hurt you and you just kept it in and he didn't say anything and you were just angry with him for a couple of weeks, if not more? How many times has our anger, how many times has our grudge against a friend or neighbor or family member lasted for months, if not years? This is a hard one, but we are taught to reconcile. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Why? Verse 27, give no opportunity to the devil. When we let anger fester, temptations are there, and the devil picks on that. He tears apart. He divides the church. He destroys. Number two, uh, verses 28 and 29. Let the thieves no longer steal. Instead, let them do honest work so they have something to give. Instead of take, 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 they get to give. That's the nature of the Christian is giving. Number 29, uh, sorry, number three is 29. 29 just all by itself. No corrupting talk, but only the things, the only things that come out of our mouth build one another up. And then fourth is a little bit more of a list of things that we are not to do, followed by things that we are to do kind of on the other side. So you get all these, these things of bitterness and wrath and anger, such as that. Don't do these. So notice that. Let, let all anger be put away from you. Instead, be kind to one another. And most importantly in the list, forgive one another as God and Christ forgave you. So this is instruction on what it looks like to be the Christian, to be the church, one body, together. Let us praise the Lord incarnate, Christ who See